What is up, guys? It is the Blue Bloods here, back with another Week 3 preview. And, man, we got one of, in my opinion, one of the most underrated matchups of the weekend. We have number 19, Arizona State, traveling to number 23, BYU. If you're on the East Coast, you're going to want to get you an energy drink. You're going to have to want to stay up late for this one. It does not kick off till 10.15 Eastern Time. That's 9.15 Central Time on ESPN. It's going to be a late night. But in my opinion, this matchup between the Sun Devils and the Cougars could be one of the best matchups of the entire weekend. Now, in terms of storylines, though, the Sun Devils had a tumultuous all-season, to say the least. All these accusations were flying around about Herm Edwards and his staff, about whether they were bringing recruits illegally during COVID. A lot of people thought the staff could be gone. There could be instead of like punishment. Not much has come out about that since the season started, but the Sun Devils found a way to start 2-0. and But this is going to be their toughest test as they travel to Provo and um, in Utah and try to pull off a huge road win. And a lot of people are wondering how Herm Edwards' team is going to respond to such a test, their first true road test of the season. And on the other side, BYU also comes into this game 2-0, and they're looking for their third straight Pac-12 win to start the season. They're not in the Pac-12, but they've beaten Arizona. They beat Utah last week for the first time in, I believe, over a decade And now they're looking for their second straight top 25 win over a Pac-12 team, looking to follow up their dominant 2020 season. And a lot of people were predicting their downfall. They have responded. They have not missed a beat. And as we get into the game, as I'm recording right now, Arizona State is a four-point favorite over BYU. And for me, it's easy. The key for the Sun Devils is just continuing to establish the rushing attack and control the time of possession of this game. That's been their strength for the first two wins of the season, and there is no reason to change that now as you get into the bulk of your schedule. The Sun Devils have rushed for over 500 yards, nine touchdowns, and as an entire team have been averaging about six yards per touch on the ground, it's elite production. The offensive line has been mauling people, and I understand they haven't played the type of defense they're going to see this weekend, but it's still impressive that they've been able to put up those type of numbers. Now, Rashad White and Daniel Ngata are going to be the two uh, top running backs for this offense, and both have shown the ability to be a feature back for the Sun Devils, and they are going to have to have a dynamic performance this upcoming weekend. Now, White has about 150 yards rushing, averaged over five yards per carry, and has found the end zone four times already this season. While Ngata has rushed for over 100 yards, averaging almost six yards per carry, and has found the end zone twice. They have shown that they can score. They can sh- they, they've shown they can be explosive, consistent, and be the workhorse. So if those two guys can combine to replicate that performance this weekend, Arizona State's going to be tough to beat. And let's not forget, Jaden Daniels has flashed his athleticism all season thus far and is actually the current rushing yards leader for the Sun Devils to this point in the season, over 165 yards rushing. 
and he's averaging almost nine yards per carry. It is an elite mark, and every time Daniels gets out of the pocket, he makes something special happen with his legs, and that has to continue. If he continues to be dynamic and a playmaker outside the pocket, it's going to be a problem. I do want to see his passing game improve because, yes, he's continued to be accurate. He's completing about 73% of his passes, but he hasn't really pushed the ball down the field. Only a, only 300 total yards passing, two touchdowns, and a pick. He's got to avoid turnovers, and he has to find a way to take advantage of the stack box that BYU is going to throw at them in time to stop the run. If, he, if, if Daniels cannot burn BYU over the top – Arizona State is going to have a very tough time trying to find a way to win this game. Now, the key for the Cougars is similar, and it is to establish the rushing game, but it's also to allow Jaron Hall to take advantage of favorable matchups down the stretch, set up the play-action game, which was the at which 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 was the perfect recipe against Utah last week in a huge ranked win for BYU. Now. Tyler Tyler Algar is one of the best running backs in the country that people are not talking about. This guy has shown he can be explosive, consistent, and that he can be an every-down type of back and that he can take that beating in the Power 5. Now, he has 200 yards rushing this year with only a touchdown, but last year when he was a feature back as well, had over 1,100 yards rushing, 13 touchdowns, and was averaging over 7.5 yards per carry. That's elite production, and Algar has always seemed to be the key for that BYU offense when it explodes. Even though Zach Wilson was throwing it down the field, Algar was able to give him favorable matchups in the play action and able to you know get some defenders in the box to allow those wide receivers to have one-on-one matchups on the outside. He's the key this week. It allows them to, one, control the game and impose their will and make this game a BYU type of game where they can impose themselves on Arizona State. And similar to what I just talked about with Arizona State, Jaron Hall has the ability to make some plays with his legs as well. He has to be ready for this moment. He has to show up, replicate the success of his first two starts this year. He has 130 yards rushing, and he's averaging almost 10 yards per carry. That is elite, and he's done an excellent job replacing Zach Wilson, has yet to have an interception, thrown for over 400 yards, five touchdowns, and is completing over 62% of his passes. If he can continue to be efficient, accurate, limit limit turnovers, and make crucial plays with his legs when needed, you know, when the pocket breaks down, when there's an opportunity to scramble for a first down, he makes those plays. BYU is going to be a tough team to beat this weekend, especially with the game being at that home stadium, which we saw could be a game changer as they've upset some huge teams in that stadium. Now, for the matchup to watch, it's for me, it has to be the Arizona State offensive line against an extremely talented and underrated BYU front seven, which should be probably the biggest test for the Sun Devils up to this point and one of the biggest tests of the season, in my opinion. Now, the Sun Devils O-line has only given up three sacks thus far and only six total pressures in their two games. If that can continue and they can find a way to do that against this talented BYU front, the Sun Devils are more than likely going to have a great chance to win this game. Now, 
I believe it's Kellen Deesh has been one of the highest graded offensive tackles in the country thus far. And he is going to have to anchor this offensive line and bring others with him in Provo this weekend. Now, for the BYU defense, they've been electric in terms of rushing the passer in these pass rushing situations. They've really put their opponents in bad situations in which they can pin their ears back and come after the quarterback with some force. And BYU has seven sacks, guys, and 26 total hurries just in the first two games of this season thus far, and they've shown that they can be extremely creative in their blitz packages, and and that's really what I want to see this weekend. I want them to show multiple fronts. I want them to disguise the blitz, run stunts, and confuse this Arizona State offensive line and force them into mistakes. Now, the key to this is the edge defenders have to stay disciplined. If you get too far up the field, Jaden Daniels is going to make you pay, and you cannot let him get out of the pocket and beat you with his legs. If he starts establishing himself with his legs and then the passing game comes later, Arizona State could run away with this one. So be disciplined, but be creative and be efficient rushing the passer. Now, Tyler Beatty and Uriah, I believe it's Leah too, are going to have to be two players on this D-line to watch. They are the both the edge rushers, and they're going to have to make their impact. They both have a sack this year. They both can consistently get to the quarterback. If they can continue making plays like I know they can, then BYU is going to be very tough to beat. And whoever wins the line of scrimmage in this game, in my opinion, and is able to impose their will – pace of play, all that kind of stuff is going to have a significant advantage, in my opinion, on who wins this game. Now, you know, for my official prediction, I really think this game is going to be close. I think these teams are evenly matched. I think their strengths are very similar. Their weaknesses are very similar. It's just right now I have a little, I have a little bit more faith in the run game of BYU, and I have, a, and I have more faith in the offense of BYU to replicate what they've done at home. Jaron Hall at home is going to be able to make some plays. You know, I think Jaden Daniels through the air is kind of limited at this point. The wide receiving core for me has not been there. And so in my opinion, due to the home field advantage, due to Hall, due to Algar, I have BYU taking a close one. By three points. I think it's going to be like a one to three, maybe the four point game. But for me, I have BYU 30, Arizona State 27 this week in Provo, Utah. And what a, what an atmosphere that place is going to be electric. And if you are up at 915 Central Time, turn on ESPN and watch these two great teams go to work and put on a show. Um, for the whole country, man. I am so pumped for this game. It's going to be one of the most competitive games of the weekend. And it's going to go a long way in, one, determining what Arizona State is going to be in the Pac-12. And it also could be a huge test to see, can BYU replicate what all the success they had last year, even after they lost Zach Wilson and multiple other pieces to the NFL draft. So make sure to tune into that. Make sure to hit we have a huge non-conference matchup, and it has college football playoff implications for potentially the first group of five teams to ever have a realistic shot at the college football playoff. Yes, it's been taken down just a notch, a notch 
due to some struggles for Indiana, but we have Cincinnati traveling to Indiana, traveling to Bloomington to take on the Hoosiers, 11 a.m. Central Time, live on ESPN. And this game could not be any bigger for the Bearcats because this will be a huge Power 5 road win early in the season to put on their resume for the college football playoff as that inches closer. And if they can keep this winning streak alive, it is going to give them arguably the best group of five resume that we have seen thus far in college football. Now for storylines, the Bearcats come into the game with two huge wins over, you know, inferior opponents in Murray state and the Miami of Ohio team, but they've dominated both those games they're motivated to make the strongest run for a group of, group of five program in the history of the college playoff era. Luke Fickle may have his best team yet. There's also the rumors that Fickle is on the short list of coaches that USC would like to see. Cincinnati just last week announced a move to the Big 12. So there's a lot going on here in terms of the Bearcats for the future of this program and how big this game is. Now, for the, for the Hoosiers, they started the season with a huge blowout loss to Iowa, but they rebounded in a huge way against Idaho last week. But Michael Penix and this offense have to find a way to reach their potential, which they showed early last season before Penix went down with an unfortunate knee injury that kept him out the entire season. And if they want to bounce back and compete for the Big Ten, which is wide open now due to Ohio State's loss, they're going to have to replicate that early success they found early in 2020. Now, as we move to the keys for the Bearcats, it's to it, the key for me is to establish the run and allow Ritter to make plays using the play-action game because that was the recipe for Iowa when they upset Indiana in a huge way, in a dominating fashion. They struggled against a dominating rushing attack and they allow Petrus to just kind of dink and duck and use the play action to get some high percentage throws. That is how Iowa beat them down in week one. Now, the rushing attack, arguably for Cincinnati, has a much you know more explosive running back, and it starts with Jerome Ford, a transfer from Alabama before last season, and he has become a dominant rushing force for the Bearcats this season. 234 yards, averaging almost eight yards per carry, and he has four touchdowns in the first two games of this season. He's got not only the size to overpower smaller defenders, but he also possesses that elite breakaway speed where he can outrun a DB down the field and get those big chunk gains. But he also, the key for him now, last year was more of kind of like getting him in the flow of you know the game and getting him some experience. Now he has the experience to really be a threat in this offense and really kind of take that pressure off of Desmond Ritter where Ritter doesn't have to carry the offense and they can lean on Ford in the biggest moments, in the biggest games. And let's not forget Desmond Ritter is still a threat with his legs. And that's something that Indiana really hasn't had to face yet this season. And it could be an X factor for the Bearcats getting this win. When you look at Ritter, He's rushed for over 1,800 yards in his career, 23 rushing touchdowns on the ground. And last year, he set his career high with 12 rushing touchdowns while averaging over six yards per carry. He has that ability to make plays when things break down in the pocket 
And he also can make plays on design runs. We saw in the Tulsa game, he busted out like a huge, I believe it was a 90-yard touchdown run. He was absolutely electric against some of the best defenses they faced last season. Now, the one thing I do want to see the Bearcats try and do is involve Charles McClellan more in the run game. And what this gives the Bearcats is a one-two duo in the backfield to make sure they keep presenting this Hoosiers front seven with more and more fresh bodies. You don't want to just run, you know, forward into the ground. You want to involve McClellan because you want to, you, you want to see one, what he has, and two, you don't want to, you know, wear down your top running back this early in the season. And McClellan has averaged over six yards per carry thus far um, in the 2021 season. So he can do it. But those are the keys for me for Cincinnati going into this matchup. Now, for Indiana, it's a bit more complicated because it really boils down to which Michael Penix and which Hoosiers offense are you getting. The key is for Indiana to find somewhere inside of Michael Penix that 2020 version and bring him to Memorial Stadium this weekend because he cannot replicate what he did week one because the Hoosiers are not going to even be able to compete in this game. You know, really and truly, I understand the Idaho game wasn't terrible, but this Hoosiers offense has really struggled early, especially in week one. This offense is averaging under 300 yards of total offense per game thus far in the season after two games. And last season, this is an offense that averaged over 360, approaching 400 yards of total offense. And they have to do that again. And the catalyst was Michael Penix being electric and being a game changer and also limiting his turnovers with only four interceptions. That has to happen. You have to get him, you know, before his injury and what he was doing then. They got to turn it around this weekend or it could be really a lot of trouble. And I mean, really and truly, Penix was the key to them making that top 10 run and almost upsetting Ohio State early last season. But now that he's kind of experienced some struggles, a lot of experts are wondering, is he fully recovered from his injury and kind of where is he at at this point in the season? When you look at what he's done, he's only completed 53% of his passes for only 224 yards, two touchdowns, and three picks. That that touchdown-interception ratio is still in the wrong direction, to say the least. And the most concerning stat for me and the most concerning thing watching film is he's not pushing the ball down the field and he really doesn't have time to push the ball down the field. He's only averaging about 4.8 yards per attempt, which is one of the worst marks in the country. And he was averaging up over seven last season. You have to start pushing the ball further down the field because if you just try to throw underneath, 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 the defense is going to catch on to that and that offense is not going to be able to move the ball down the field. For me, the key is Penix has to be accurate, he has to be efficient, and he most of all has to avoid the turnovers because the Cincinnati offense is way too efficient and way too explosive to give them extra possessions to put points on the board. And also, if you give this offense a short field, they are going to turn it into points. You cannot do that. And the one positive for the offense, though, which is not something I expected, they've done pretty well at establishing the running game. And if they can continue that, it should help Penix develop his rhythm throughout the game by giving him some high percentage throws, some play action looks, and allowing the defense to be a bit more honest in what they're going to bring to the table. Stephen Carr was a huge transfer this offseason, and he's been the leading rusher with 170 and a touchdown in the first two weeks. 
I do want to see Tim Baldwin Jr. become a nice running back, too, for them and kind of help this Hoosier team diversify their attack. But those are the keys for Indiana, and those are so important because if Michael Penix doesn't play well, Indiana does not have a shot in this one. And, you know, there's there's a few matchups I could have went with, but the number one thing I'm looking at is the Indiana wide receiving core against this extremely talented secondary for the Bearcats in which multiple future NFL prospects are found in that secondary. And they've been an elite unit for just about two seasons now, you know, especially under Marcus Freeman, who now left for Notre Dame, who they'll face in two weeks. But this defense has not missed a step this year. And I want to start with the Hoosiers because they have an obvious number one option and he has to be dominant this game, just like he was against Ohio State last year, and that is Ty Fry-Fogel. He is a game-changer at that wide receiver one spot, and he is Pinnock's safety net. When he is in trouble, he can throw it up, and he knows Fry-Fogel is going to make a play. DJ Matthews, DJ Matthews Jr., Javon Swinton have to become – bigger threats, you know, at the other at the other wide receiver positions. There's going to be opportunities because Cincinnati is going to scheme for Fryfogel and try to slow him down. You have to take advantage of the one-on-one coverage and or matchup advantages you get because of that. If you can't do that, it is going to be a problem for Indiana because you can't just rely strictly on Fryfogel. And also watch out for AJ Barner at the tight end spot. He showed, you know, I believe it was last week that he could be explosive with a huge 76-yard touchdown, and he's going to be a matchup nightmare for any linebacker because he is that athletic. So for me, A.J. Barner is another guy to watch in terms of this wide receiving core that Indiana can utilize against this Cincinnati defense. And the secondary for the Bearcats has some game changers on the back end. This defense last year ranked eighth in the country in scoring defense and only allowed 0.6 passing touchdowns per game and had and held opponents for the entire season to a 53% completion percentage. That is a that is elite. The secondary, of course, is headlined in just my personal opinion. This is my number one DB, Ahmad Gardner. He has still not allowed a single touchdown as the primary defender in his career at Cincinnati. And he's been one of the top-rated DBs for multiple seasons. And he's back. He's already got him a pick early in the season. And this guy is probably going to be the guy you're going to put on Fryfogel to try to shut him down. But the problem for Indiana is the Bearcats also have Arquan Bush and Kobe Bryant at the cornerback spots while Javon Hicks is probably one of the most underrated safeties in the country. They are so deep in the back end of that defense, and then you still got to worry on the front end about Majah Sanders being able to rust the passer because if he is, replicates what he did last year, Indiana's O-line's also got to come to play as well. The, this matchup is going to go a long way in determining the outcome of this huge matchup, and if the Bearcats can replicate Iowa's production in terms of turnovers and forcing Penix to be uncomfortable through the air. It is going to be a long day for the Hoosiers. But when the Hoosiers a passing game and Michael Penix are on point and Todd Frafogel can put on a performance like he did against Ohio State, Indiana could beat any team in the country. They're that explosive. But the question is, who is going to be able to impose their will? They want to play two different games. Who is going to be able to impose their will and make it their type of game? Personally, for official predictions, 
you know, as you see down at the bottom, uh, Cincinnati is a four-point favorite right now over the Hoosiers. I'm sure that's going to move. We're recording this early as we like to get these out in the middle of the week so we have everyone has time to catch, you know, what we got to say. For me right now, I feel like Cincinnati is too deep in the secondary. They're going to force Penix into multiple mistakes. I feel like the quarterback in Desmond Ritter has been in big moments. He's experienced. He's ready for his spotlight moment. Their run game is going to be too good with Ford. I don't trust Stephen Carr to be able to carry this offense without Penix playing excellent. And for me, I think the Cincinnati D-line is just a hair better than what the O-line of Indiana is going to bring. And I don't trust Indiana's D-line to get to Ritter consistently enough for them to, you know, really pull this upside off. So I have Cincinnati getting a huge non-conference win over Indiana, 38 23 in Memorial Stadium, you know, on Saturday morning, 11 a.m. Central kickoff. But I got the Bearcats 38, Hoosiers 23. Guys, I want let's get right into it. We, you know, this is a game that for me, as much as people are kind of overlooking it just because of the mismatch that it could be, for me, this is such an interesting game because it is an old Big 12 robbery brought back from the dead as, you know, for Fox Big Noon kickoff, goes down to Norman as the Cornhuskers and the Sooners finally match up again. And the last time they faced actually – was the Big 12 championship game in 2003 in which the Sooners claimed the three-point victory, but a lot has changed since that night in 2003. Now, you know, I'm so excited that we get to see this matchup come back to life after so many years of not seeing it. The Sooners do hold the, um, I guess, series lead with 45 wins, 38 38 wins for Nebraska and three ties. And the Sooners have won six out of the last eight meetings, including that 2003 Big 12 championship. Now, for other storylines, though, the the Cornhuskers come into this game two and one. They've put together two straight impressive wins after falling to Illinois in the conference opener in week zero. But Scott Frost has to try to find a way to get that signature win, and there will be nothing bigger than upsetting the Sooners and Norman this weekend. So this Nebraska team is going to be pulling out all the stops and be doing everything they can to pull the big upset. Now, the Sooners week one, criticized you know highly by almost everyone as they almost fell to Tulane in a 40-35 game in which the Sooners just kind of let Tulane hang around, and they made a very strong run at the end. But they took all their frustration, all their anger out on Western Carolina last weekend with a 76 to nothing win over 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 uh, Western Carolina. They're looking to make another out of conference statement this weekend when the Cornhuskers come to town. And they're looking to show that, you know, that first week was just a fluke and that they are here to win another Big 12 championship. Now, the key for the Sooners, I want to move to that. What are the keys for the Sooners? It's obvious to me, and it's it's not what I it's not what you would think I pick, but for me, it starts with establishing the rushing game, and therefore you can open up the play action game for Spencer Rattler in that passing attack. And for me, that is where Spencer Spencer Rattler has thrived the most this season. That's where the Sooners' offense has been the most dynamic. 
and the most explosive is when they have a running game and Spencer Rattler can eat off that play action and the wide receivers get more favorable matchups and they get more favorable coverages, things like that. Now, at running back, for me, the Sooners have one of the most dynamic one-two punches in the country. It starts with Kennedy Brooks, who will kind of be the workhorse guy. He'll probably, in my opinion, get most of the carries. And he has, I believe, the most experience of any other running back on this roster. Now, he's rushed for over 130 yards this season, two touchdowns, and he's averaging over seven yards per carry. And he is primed because they've kept his workload pretty reasonable the first two weeks. He is primed to have a big weekend um, this upcoming weekend just because this is probably the best defense they've faced thus far. And I would imagine that Kennedy Brooks gets to see his his workload increase just a bit this weekend. And if he can continue the pace that he's on, Kennedy Brooks is going to be a problem. Now, my X factor in terms of this key is Eric Gray. I love this kid. I, you know, he caught my eye as a freshman at Tennessee, and I said he was going to be a star. I think he's a, I think he's a more dynamic option out of the backfield, and he's the better running back out in space where he is a matchup nightmare one on one in the open field, and he is going to make a defender miss, and he has the breakaway speed and the and the explosiveness to really make some down the field plays for Oklahoma. So I'm looking for him to get a bit more, I guess carries a bit more targets, whatever it is. I want to see him in the scheme a bit more this week. He has over 100 rushing yards and a receiving touchdown. I just need him to be a larger part of this offense because, in my opinion, he is just lightning in a bottle. And if the Sooners can get him working with, you know, Brooks in in terms of the inside run, the Sooners are going to be almost impossible to stop. And I want to get to why I picked this key because part of me wanted to pick – just to let Spencer Rattler distribute the ball, just run the offense through him. The reason I pick establish the run game to lead into the play action is because Rattler right now is one of the highest graded quarterbacks in the country in terms of play action pa- passes. The Sooners have two running backs that can set this up. They're dangerous. The defense is going to have to commit to stop the run. And thus far, over 52% of Rattler's dropbacks have been off the play action, and he grades out at a 92, according to Pro Football Focus, in terms of passing grade on these play action concepts. When just on these play action plays, his, his completion percentage is almost 75% over 300 yards passing and three touchdowns. And he's averaging his, his, I guess, the highest yards per pass attempt in these concepts with almost 10 yards per pass. That's off play action. It shows that he's moving the ball down the field. He's getting favorable matchups when that defense has to commit to stop the run. This has led already in two games to 19 first downs for the Sooners this season, which just shows how well this offense moves. If 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 Rattler is able to go off that play action, the wide receivers are able to make plays, and Brooks and Gray are dynamic out of the backfield. If the Corn Huskers have to commit more players to the box, Lincoln Riley is going to dial it up, and the Sooners have elite playmakers all along the outside to make explosive plays happen. It's led by Marvin Mims, Mario Williams, Jadon Hazelwood, Michael Woods the second, Austin Stoner, all those guys are going to be key factors here. So for me, I'm going with the play action. I'm going with the run game for the key for Oklahoma in this game. Now for the Cornhuskers, 
It is also establishing the run game, but it's in a different way and for a completely different reason. They're going to have a completely different offensive scheme than what the Sooners have. They don't have the playmakers on the outside. They don't have the two dynamic running backs like the Sooners do. It's a different case, and they don't have Spence Rattler, a quarterback. Adrian Martinez has done a great job through the air early in the season, but there are concerns about this offensive line and pass protection. So the run game has got to be efficient because if you can't stay in third and manageable, that pass rush is going to find a way to get to Adrian Martinez, and this offense is going to be in major trouble. You have to be able to establish some drives. You have to avoid turnovers. And if you find yourself in third and long and you just keep having three and outs, three and outs, three and outs, your defense is going to get worn down, and this game is going to get out of hand extremely, extremely early, and you cannot have that if you're Scott Frost on the road. The offensive line has already given up six sacks in their first three games. But Martinez has yet to throw an interception. That is huge. He has 700 yards passing, four touchdowns. So he's been pretty decent through the air. The rushing attack, though, has to be more efficient and explosive. The Sooners are going to get points on a majority of their drops. That's just the type of offensive team they are. So the Cornhuskers have to win the time of possession and wear down this front seven of Oklahoma. Marquis Stepp. Gabe Urban Jr. have to have their best game of the season this weekend. They have to show that they can be the focal point of a game plan or the Sooners are going to be able to key in on Martinez down the stretch. And once this offense becomes one-dimensional, it's going to be a problem. Now, don't sleep on Martinez either and what he can do with his legs. He's actually the leading rusher for the Cornhuskers right now. 253 touchdowns so far. He has to make plays with his legs this weekend. It, the better, the best case scenario is that Oklahoma always has to take a spa. So either you take one pass rusher away, which gives your offensive line better odds to pick up the blitz, to, to pick up pass rushers, and or you take someone away from coverage and you get a one-on-one matchup somewhere that you wouldn't have otherwise. And also, when they get when the pocket breaks down, can Martinez turn a potential sack and a big loss? into a two, three-yard game and or an even explosive play like he did with the 75-yard run in the third quarter in the third quarter against Illinois. The running game is also important. My last point here, it's because the Sooners have found the end zone, got touchdowns on 14 of their 15 trips to the red zone. In this game, you cannot match Oklahoma with field goals. If they're scoring touchdowns, you got to score touchdowns. And if and if it's fourteen to six, it's going to get out of hand. You have to match every touchdown they have with the touchdown for yourself. It's not enough in a game like this just to get points on the board. So that's why the running game is important. You have to be able to run it down on the goal line and make sure you get in the end zone and be dynamic with your play calling. Now, the matchup to watch is easy. It's got to be this Nebraska O-line against this dangerous Oklahoma defensive line because for Nebraska, winning the line of scrimmage is the utmost importance and protecting Adrian Martinez and passing downs in situations is also a huge, huge key for them. Now, the O-line is probably my biggest concern for the Cornhuskers this weekend. Like I said, they've lost six sacks, but they've allowed 30 hurries and 40 pressures in only in only three games against D-lines that do not have the depth and the talent that the Sooners D-line has. So for me, 
you have to you have to have your best game of the season. And what tells a much graver story for me is that Nebraska's O line grades out as one of the worst pass blocking offensive lines of the country, which is why one of their keys was establishing the run. This is from this is from I believe left to right in terms of grades for this Nebraska O line. 83.1, 56.4, 82.7, the center playing outstanding, 66.1 for the guard, and 34.1 for the right tackle. The two tackles at 34.1 and 43.1 are atrocious. The edge is a problem for the Cornhuskers because just the offensive tackles alone have allowed 20 pressures and 19 hurries this season. And the bad part for the Cornhuskers, that's the strength of this Oklahoma defensive line. The O-line has to find a way to keep Martinez comfortable in the pocket because if it becomes one-dimensional and they find themselves in second and third and long, Oklahoma has the dogs on the front end of that defense to fight, to get in those pass rush lanes and make plays. Now, the D-line for the Sooners have has already racked up eight sacks and 40 hurries in only two games. They see a huge opportunity this weekend. It starts with Nick Benito at, at the edge position, has was the highest-graded pass rusher in the country last season for edge players, and he could be the X factor. 13 sacks in his career, almost 20 tackles for loss, and he can be a game wrecker for the Sooners' defense. But also, don't forget about Isaiah Thomas and Perion Winfrey, both of which have already combined for four sacks and are some of the highest-graded pass rushers in the country as well. Reggie Grimes is also a guy you probably should watch out for. He's flashed his potential at times for the Sooners, and he should be the benefactor of Benito requiring double teams, chip blocks, things like that. He'll find himself on an island. If Grimes can go make plays, it's going to be a long day for the Cornhuskers. So if the Cornhuskers can't protect Martinez and lose this matchup battle, the Sooners are running away with this one. And for my official prediction, I think it actually might be close, like early, like in the first quarter. I just think Oklahoma is too deep at wide receiver. Spencer Rattler is too good. And this defensive line is going to be able to get to Adrian Martinez. And they're going to have an impact and force him into some turnovers. I think Oklahoma pulls away, you know, late in the second quarter, which the second quarter has, I believe they've outscored their opponent like 50 something to nothing their first two games in the second quarter. So I think from then on, Oklahoma is going to run away with this one. I have the Sooners 49, the Cornhuskers 20, and a huge win in Norman. So I, I got a pretty big margin of victory, but I just think Oklahoma is too deep at D-line, wide receiver, running back, quarterback. They just have right now a better overall team. So I think it'll be close early due to the emotion, but the Sooners are just too good. And Lincoln Riley gets a huge 49-20 to 20 win. So guys, get right into it, man. We have the first top 15 SEC matchup of the season, and it is going to go a long way in determining both the SEC East and SEC West races this season. And really and truly, the biggest storyline is the first true road test for the Crimson Tide this year as Bryce Young has taken over that QB1 role. And it is by far the biggest test for this revamped Florida Gators team, which lost a lot of talent after their SEC championship appearance last season. And, the, you know, the storylines for this game – it starts with the Crimson Tide. They're looking for their second top 15 win 
of the 2021 season. And the funny part is both of which could be over Florida teams if they pulled this off since they beat Miami week one. And many experts are extremely interested to see what Bryce Young looks like in his first start in one of the most hostile environments of college football, which is the swamp. It's going to be packed. It's going to be loud. And we have seen it shake so many young quarterbacks in the moment be too big. How will Bryce Young respond to the swamp this Saturday at 2.30 on CBS? The Gators, on the other hand, are looking to fight and fight and find a way to another SEC championship appearance. They have a lot of new offensive pieces, a lot of new defensive pieces in certain spots. But the biggest storyline is there could potentially be a quarterback battle in Gainesville this weekend. There's some injury question marks on both sides of the ball. So what type of offense and who is going to be able to help the Gators try to pull off one of the biggest upsets of the season this week in Gainesville. And I want to get into the keys for Alabama first. The Crimson Tide, their keys should be pretty easy to identify, but they have to allow Bryce Young to be almost like a Rajon Rondo of their offense in which he just distributes the ball to the playmakers. All we need are those uh, quote-unquote assists and just let your playmakers go out there and make plays against this Florida secondary, which has a lot of inexperience and a lot of question marks outside of Kair Elam at that corner spot. Bryce Young doesn't have to do anything outside of the offense or anything over the top. He just needs to let the playmakers do their job, get them the ball in space, limit turnovers, and let your guys go ball out for you. When you look when you look at you know his offensive breakdown over the first two games, that's what he's done on short passes, zero to nine yards. He's completed 91% of his passes over 230 yards and five touchdowns. So he can just get it to his guys and they can turn those short passes into huge gains and or explosive plays. He's also 80, he's completed 80% of his passes for 135 yards and a touchdown on medium range passes. 10 to 19 yards down the field. Young grades is one of the best quarterbacks at both of these field lengths and passing attempt, you know, passing attempts. He is one of the best in the country. What he can do is he can drop it off to that wide receiving core and short yardage to medium yardage. And those guys are good enough to turn those plays into something bigger. And this Florida defense is going to have to be ready for it because it could be an absolute backbreaker in terms of momentum for the Gators if they allow Alabama to turn those small plays into chunk plays, which is what killed Miami down the stretch of that first, that, that week one game. The wide receiving core for the Crimson Tide has been reinvigorated, guys. The addition of Jamison Williams has been something to really look out for. He exploded onto the scene, 150 receiving yards, two touchdowns, and is probably the most explosive option in this Crimson Tide offense. And you can't forget about Mechie and Slade Bolden both being experienced options in this wide receiving core as well. And it just shows the depth of this unit because Mechie is capable of taking over an entire game and being that wide receiver one, even when Jamison Williams doesn't show up. Now, here's my X factor, though. I want y'all to remember this name, and I want y'all to watch watch him because he has 
been one of these guys that have kind of secret, you know, under under the radar kind of shown up in this offense, and that is JoJo Earl, four-star true freshman out of Texas. And I compared him when we did our recruiting breakdown to Rondell Moore, and he is a matchup nightmare in the slot. And I think he's one of the most promising options at the wide receiver position in terms of how creative Bill O'Brien can get getting him the ball. So look out for JoJo Earl this weekend, especially on the underneath stuff, especially on jet sweeps, things like that, because JoJo Earl has the potential to really open up this Bama offense. And all you have to do, the key is to get the ball to Williams, Mechie, Earl, whoever, let them make plays consistently have and make high percentage throws in this road environment. And then what that will do is it will soften up the defense and you're going to be able to take the deep shot later in the game, just like we saw against Miami. So the keys are so simple for Alabama. Now the keys for Florida are a little bit different, but it's clear if you study the way to beat Alabama, one, you have to establish some sort of rushing attack and two, your quarterback has to be dynamic with his legs and, and be able to make plays outside the pocket, which puts on which which puts, I guess, a different type of pressure on Alabama's defense. Now, to be fair, the Gators rushing attack has been one of the best units in the country thus far. They've put up almost eight hundred rushing yards in two games. They're averaging over eight and a half yards per carry as an entire team and have seven rushing touchdowns in only two games of action. The running back room has seen five different running backs take multiple carries, and it shows the real depth of this running back room. And these guys are probably going to go up against one of the best defensive fronts we'll see all season. So can they continue that production and consistency that we have seen thus far throughout the 2021 season? Now, Damon Pierce and Malik Davis are probably going to be the top two options based on the first two games. Pierce has been a red zone threat, three rushing touchdowns this season. He just has a knack for finding the end zone. But I want to mention my X factor, though, to kind of watch is Demarcus Bowman, five-star transfer from Clemson. He is probably, in my opinion, the most explosive running back in that positional unit, and he could be the X factor if the Gators can find a way to get him out in space and get him in favorable positions to go out there and make a play. So look out for Bowman. And it's funny, the top two, the top two rushers so far for the Gators – have been the two quarterbacks. Anthony Richardson as the backup and Emory Jones have put on a clinic in terms of rushing and making plays outside the pocket with their legs. Richardson has probably got the most hype of anyone in Gainesville in a long, long time. And he has been the talk of the town, but a hamstring injury late, late in the game last week could limit him this week. If he's healthy, Look out for him to be the Gators' secret weapon. Now, Richardson has rushed for almost 300 yards and two touchdowns, and he's averaging 25 yards per carry this season as a backup quarterback. He is a matchup nightmare, and he looks to be every bit of a future star in college football. Now, Emory Jones, 150 in a touchdown, but it's because his ability to make plays with his legs is important because his passing has been atrocious. Four interceptions against under, I guess, overmatched teams. And 
if that happens this weekend against Bama, Alabama is going to absolutely run away with this one. And you cannot have that happen if you're the Florida Gators. So Jones and Richardson have to be dynamic with their legs because it's going to open up passing lanes and allow them to you know, kind of get into the flow of their game, work their way into the offense, and find some high percentage throws somewhere in this very, very talented Alabama secondary. Now, the matchup to watch for me is easy because it's strength versus weakness, and it's the same one I picked for Miami because this Miami offensive line and this Florida O-line have the same problem in which they don't execute against really good defensive lines. The matchup between the Florida O-line and the Alabama D-line has, I guess, has the potential to determine whether this is this could be an upset alert game or Alabama is going to run away with this one. And the Florida O-line has been a work in progress. They struggled against elite D-lines over the past two seasons. They've given up almost 50 sacks over the past two seasons combined. But so far this year, they've only allowed one sack but the competition level is not at not what they've seen so far. Alabama's bringing in the, the strongest D-line, the strongest front seven that the Gators might see all season. They're going to have to execute, pave rushing lanes to get that run game established while also not putting unnecessary pressure on Emory Jones or Richardson in the pocket because you cannot allow Alabama to tee off on your quarterbacks and force them into unnecessary turnovers. If you give Alabama the ball in favorable positions and or give them extra possessions, they're putting points on the board. And the secondary in this defense just has a knack for turning those turnovers into six points themselves. So you have to try to limit that if if you're if you're um Florida's offensive line now, the Alabama D line, absolute problem. We saw it week one against Miami. They teed off on De'Aaron King. They have so much talent, but Christopher's Christopher Allen's injury, which is probably going to keep him out for the rest of the year, it's a huge loss. And then Will Anderson got banged up late in the game last week. Now, Anderson, according to Saban today, looks like he's probably going to be ready to go. How What percentage he's at, I don't know. But if he's limited and due to you know the Allen's injury, Look for Drew Sanders and Chris Braswell to kind of step up at those outside linebacker edge spots. And Braswell looks like the real deal out of high school. I really liked him. He was a five-star kid. He could be a game changer. This could be Sanders and Braswell's moment to really shine and prove themselves in the Saban system. Now, Fidarian Mathis, Byron Young, and DJ Dale are the interior guys all of which are going to factor into the pass rush and stopping the run. And these guys have combined for four sacks in the first two games of the season. They're a problem, and Alabama has pass rushers at every single spot on that defensive line. So you cannot sleep on those interior guys getting pressure up the middle. Now, also watch out for Chris Harris, Christopher Harris at the linebacker spot. He's a versatile blitz piece for the Saban defense. And he's been shown that he can play a role in any type of pass rush package. He's found a way to get some sacks, and he's found a way to get into the quarterback's face, and he's athletic enough where he's going to be able to make some plays out in space on Emory Jones and Anthony Richardson. Now, Florida just has to make sure they keep their quarterbacks as clean as possible. If you keep finding yourself in third and long and third and unmanageable, they're going to pin their ears back, and you're going to have to be ready to fight off arguably one of the best front sevens in the country. 
That cannot happen for the Florida Gators while Alabama, they know what to do. They know if they can get pressure on the passer, it's going to force them into bad mistakes. It's going to cause them to go quick three and out. And they're go- and on the flip side, Bama is going to be able to wear down the Florida defense. And it just all turns into a recipe for disaster. So Florida has to win this matchup battle or it could get extremely ugly come this Saturday in Gainesville. Now, for my official prediction, you know, I, I haven't seen many upset predictions. I've seen some close ones. I've seen some major blowouts. I think this one will be close early as Alabama tries to probably ease Bryce Young into this environment. And I think Florida's just going to have that crowd behind them. I think it could be a low-scoring first half. I just think Alabama has too much talent on the offensive side of the ball. I think that defense is too stingy. They're going to force Emory Jones into, into some mistakes. Richardson not being 100% really hurts the upset bid. And I don't trust that Florida run game against this front seven of Alabama. I think Bama's going to be able to pull away late, even though by, in the first quarter and halftime, it's probably going to be an extremely close game. I have the Crimson Tide winning this game 41-24 over the Florida Gators in Gainesville. But don't sleep on the Gators in the first half. But I just think Alabama has too much depth. So I got the Crimson Tide 41 the Gators 24. So, but now we're going to, in my opinion, the game of the week. We got the number 22 Auburn Tigers traveling to Happy Valley to take on the number 10 Penn State Nittany Lions. 6.30 p.m. Central Time, live on ABC. It is in prime time. It's a whiteout. The fans are going to be ridiculous. College game day is going to kick it off. This game could not be any bigger for the stage of college football, and I am so excited to watch it go down. As I'm recording, the line is Penn State minus minus six. So they are about a touchdown favorite over the Auburn Tigers. And, man, I cannot wait for this game. I just want to say that one more time. You know, for storylines, Penn State's looking to get a huge non-conference win over an SEC team, move to 3-0 as the Big Ten has officially become wide open. Ohio State getting upset by Oregon. Penn State and Iowa both making big top 10 runs um, going into this game. So for me, this is this is a game that could really set the tone for Penn State to be one of those next contenders to have a shot to get back to the Big Ten championship game. And they had a huge week one win over Wisconsin on the road in Madison. So Penn State's looking to notch a, seg- a second signature win to their resume this week with another top 25 matchup. Now, Auburn is by far looking to get their biggest win of the Brian Harson era. They had two dominant wins, both scoring over 60 points, in which they had some, let's just say, they they faced some outclass teams, but they d- did it in dominant fashion. But what, how, you know, how will the Tigers respond when they're faced with a top 10 opponent? on the road for the first time in 2021 after two years of road woes for the offensive line in Bo Nix. This is Brian Harson's first monumental game as head coach for, for the Auburn Tigers. So how will he respond in this type of environment? Because there really couldn't be a bigger national stage than a college game day, ABC primetime, whiteout in the Happy Valley. I mean, it is the recipe for an absolute legendary – it's a legendary stage for this game. Now, let's get into the keys for Penn State. 
And I know a lot of people are probably like, well, you got to run the ball. You got to do this. The key for Penn State is to keep Sean Clifford comfortable and let the playmakers around him for Penn State go win this game because they have the weapons surrounding Sean Clifford to win this game. Compare, you know, and they got great matchups across the board against this Auburn defense, in my opinion. Now, Clifford looked extremely uncomfortable in the first half against Wisconsin, hence the 0-0 halftime score, but he really settled in late and found a way to win the game. He hit Jahan Dotson on a huge, huge touchdown pass to really kind of break that game open, and he looked solid last week against Ball State as well. He's completing over 63% of his passes, almost 500 yards passing and two touchdowns, and the key stat zero interceptions and if he continues that this weekend Penn State has an outstanding shot to go out and win this game and Clifford uh, you know doesn't get enough respect for this he can go make plays with his legs and with this Auburn D-line which has shown some ability the first two games of the season to get upfield and get after the the quarterback he's got to take he's got to take those broken plays those opportunities to get out of the pocket and turn you know a potential 5 10 yard loss into a two to three yard gain and or an explosive play. If he can make one or two guys miss, he's got to create something outside the pocket. And that is the key for Sean Clifford. And, you know, I mentioned the playmakers. I've mentioned this guy already. The X factor for this Penn State offense is Jahan Dotson at wide receiver because he is going to be a matchup nightmare for everyone in that Auburn secondary. And he is by far the most explosive target for Clifford going into this weekend. Dotson is tied tied for the team lead in receptions. He is the receiving yards leader, and he's leading in touchdowns right now. Going into this matchup, he's going to probably be matched up with Roger McCreary, which is going to be a potential NFL versus NFL type matchup on the outside when Penn State has the ball. Now, I do want you to watch out for Parker Washington and Keandre Lambert-Smith as the next type of options. Washington's tied for the team lead in receptions and can see some extra opportunities due to Derek Mason and this Auburn defense scheming to take away Dotson because he is by far the biggest threat on the outside of this Penn State team. And the reason I picked this key, let me break it down for y'all, is because the Auburn defense, even though they had some outclassed opponents, showed some weaknesses, especially last week early with short passes and allowed Alabama State to put together some drives by just dinking and dunking their way down the field. And that is where someone like Sean Clifford can thrive with the athletes that Penn State has on the outside. Alabama State completed 14 passes underneath for for almost over 100 yards and got five first downs, which led to their good drives until special teams and a block field goal and all that kind of took, took all the momentum away. But Penn State will have the athletes to take advantage of this because even if they dump it low, their athletes can make people miss and turn those small five-yard passes into 20, 30-yard gains and or worse. As long as Clifford can keep the ball out of danger, Penn State should be able to move the ball consistently this way, and it will help the O-line as Clifford gets the ball out very quick. It allows the athletes to go make plays in space, and for me, that is going to be the key for Penn State in this game. Now, Albert, man, uh, you know, y'all see the jerseys, and, you know, this channel is completely unbiased. So, you know, if you're an Auburn fan, don't just think you're going to get, you know, anything sugar-coated here. 
The key has to be to take the pressure off of Bo Nix because he has been atrocious on the road away from Jordan Hare. But luckily, you have two explosive running backs in Tate Bigsby and Jacquez Hunter because they have to keep Nix from having to carry this offense. The number one strength of this offense is rushing attack by far. You have arguably the best running back in college football in Tate Bixby, who is the X factor for this game, who's rushed for over 240 yards, 10 yards per carry, and is going to be have to be able to produce that again this weekend if Auburn stands a chance. You know, Tank disappearing at times against Georgia and, you know, Tank being hurt against Alabama. And they, they've really hurt Auburn down the stretch. But when he's on, he can carry this team. Look at the Ole Miss game last year. You look at even the LSU game in that blowout. Tank Bixby was able to kind of open things up for Bo Nix and this offense. But the key here also is that the emergence of Jacquez Hunter is something to watch. No one thought he was going to be the second guy on the rotation, but Sean Shivers kind of getting banged up in that first week really opened up a door for Hunter, and he's something to watch as he's averaging a ridiculous 15 yards per carry this season and is actually the leading rusher for the Tigers throughout the first two games of the season. I want to see... You know, I know Tank is the incumbent guy. Jacquez has been showing some outstanding things. So I really want to see how Auburn, you know, balances rotating these guys and keeping them fresh for late in the game. Because the problem with Tank last year is sometimes you could tell he just kind of got worn down by having to carry the offense as far as he did. Now, why this is important, I mentioned it before. Bo Nix's road struggles have been thoroughly documented and this might be the most intimidating environment that he's seen thus far in his career yes i understand he played in death valley he's played in Bryant denny he's played in athens but nothing is bigger than a whiteout in prom time when the fans have had 365 days not to be in that stadium and you have the whole pressure of this brian harson era starting in the first real test for him on your shoulders Nix has never had a 300-yard game away from Jordan Hare. He's thrown 10 interceptions away from Jordan Hare compared to only three INTs in the confines of Jordan Hare. He has to stay composed, and he cannot allow his internal clock to be sped up because it has cost Auburn time and time again, especially as you look, Auburn has only won twice in their past eight road games, both coming in the state of Mississippi and Starkville and um, vault Hemingway down there in Ole Miss, and both of those environments are not going to compare, and neither of those teams are going to compare to the defense he's going to see. You saw it in Athens last year. Once they got pressure on him early, even when the pocket was clean, he would bail and put himself in bad situations outside the pocket. He's got to find a way to keep that internal clock in check, keep his nerves in check, and make sure he stands tall in the pocket because the whole rolling out thing and trying to make plays every single time out of the pocket is going to get you beat just like it did against South Carolina and just like it did against Georgia um, last season. Now, the matchup to watch has has been one that has haunted Auburn in the in recent years on the road. But it's going to be the Auburn offensive line against this Penn State front seven. And this matchup not only could determine the winner, but could determine whether this game's even close. Auburn's offensive line, even as an Auburn grad here, 
has been the biggest weakness for the Tigers for like three, four seasons. Now, Gus Malzahn could not recruit Olam for some reason. He could not develop it. The Tigers struggle to communicate. They struggle to execute. And that cannot be the case this weekend, or they are going to get blown out. Auburn's offensive line had two weeks to gel and get ready for this test. You look at Austin Troxel, Brandon Council, Nick Brahms, Keandre Jones, and Bordarius Helm all have to bring their A game. Troxel especially. He is at that tackle spot, the ever-important tackle spot. And last year, he was the lowest-graded pass blocker on the Tigers' offensive line with a 36 grade by Pro Football Focus and pass blocking. He allowed 15 hurries and almost 20 total pressures on Bo Nix. That cannot be the case this weekend. If he fails on the edge, which is one of the strengths for this Penn State team, Auburn is going to be in for a long day. Now, the offensive line thus far has done an excellent job in run blocking, but if and if they can bring this pass blocking aspect of their game to, I guess, to that level, this O-line has the ability to be special and one of the best in the SEC, and they still have guys who have some eligibility left. So next year could be the year, but they got to find a way this weekend to put together one of their better performances that we've seen in recent history. Now, Brent Pry, the defensive coordinator for Penn State, it ha- is going to have this defense flying around. He's been one of the most accomplished D coordinators in the country, and this is one of the most experienced and productive units in the country coming into this year. According to 247 Sports, over the past seven seasons, Penn State ranked second in the country, only behind Clemson in sacks per game. They ranked third in QB hurries behind Bama and Clemson and fourth in total pressures generated. This season in only two games, Penn State has 13 hits on the quarterback, 11 pressures, and three sacks. They will get after the quarterback. Arnold, I believe it's a Becky and Nick uh, Taberton are going to be the two edge guys to watch. Now, Derek Tangelo in the middle is a defensive tackle that I think has very, very high upside based on his film. I love him on the inside of the defensive line, so watch out for Tangelo as well. Now, I mentioned front seven, not just D-line, because there's a linebacker. and This whole linebacking core is legit. They're effective at blitzing, all that. But Ellis Brooks, outside linebacker, kind of like an edge scout, is, is someone in this scheme that can absolutely get after Bo Nix. Five and a half sacks in his career, and he's going to be something to watch. Watch out for Brooks being that specialized blitz option to find a way to get in Bo Nix's face. And so why I picked this is, one, Penn State has to find a way to make get in Bo Nix's face, make him uncomfortable, and speed up his decision-making like I was talking about earlier. Once that happens, this Auburn offense really seems to fall apart every single time we see them on the road. While Auburn, they know they have to protect Bo Nix if they have any chance at winning. If you take Bo Nix out of it, Tank Bigsby and Jaquez Hunter cannot do what they do. And Bo Nix struggled early against Alabama State last week. That can't happen. Alabama State was making the offensive line confused with just doing basic stunts in which they were bringing the DN inside. They were just stunting, twisting, all that kind of stuff. And it really confused Auburn's offensive line at times. Penn State is going to be a thousand times worse. They're going to have a great blitzing scheme. They're going to have better athletes. Auburn's offensive line has to find a way 
to figure it out and find a way to protect Bo Nix because I'm telling you that is going to be the key to this game. Now, I know if you're new to this channel, you probably tuned in and you were like, oh, my God, there's the Auburn jerseys. This guy is going to be unbiased. Man, this channel is way more important than any Auburn fandom I have. So, for me, looking at everything, I think, one, if this game was in Jordan-Hare, it would probably be a whole different story because you're talking about an entirely different Auburn team. But as a guy who has watched every Auburn game for as far back as I can imagine, and I did a lot of film on Penn State leading up to this episode, Penn State, in my opinion, has has the better defensive line. They have the more experienced defensive spots. And also, I trust Sean Clifford at home more than I trust Bo Nix on the road. I think Jahan Dotson is going to be a factor. He's going to get a few explosive plays. And I just think Bo Nix is going to make one too many mistakes on the road in the wideout in Happy Valley for Auburn to win. I think this is going to be a close game. I think it's going to be relatively low scoring. So I have Penn State 27 Auburn 23, they don't cover the six-point spread, but Penn State is going to make just a play or two more than what I expect Bo Nix and Auburn to make. So I got the Nittany Lions 27, Auburn 23, and I think this is going to be one of the better games of the weekend. There's, these teams are so evenly matched, and they're, they're the matchups across the positional matchups across the board are going to be so interesting to watch. And this game, to me, could have went either way. It's just home field advantage. And the history of Auburn on the road is just too much to overcome, in my opinion. So I got the Nittany Lions 27, Tigers 23. Guys, for me, I think this is going to be such a great game, and I can't wait to see the environment. But guys, for right now, the Blue Bloods are out.